Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. It is our third last show for the year, and then we'll be taking a very short break of just a few weeks, but uh, we uh, have a lot of science between now and then to get through. On the line with me is uh, one of my amazing teams. I've got Dr. Laura. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? I'm going well. Good to see you. Also, uh, Dr. Linden, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Are you keeping warm in the studio? Uh, actually, the studio is not too bad today. Uh, as, as some people know, the studios can be a bit of a refrigerated box. I think it's Triple uh, R's way of keeping the equipment uh, you know, healthy whilst freezing, <laughs> freezing my butt off. But uh, today, it's actually quite pleasant. Pretty good. Uh, good morning, Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Are you tired yet? Because uh, the last few weeks have been amazing radio <laughs> between the, the PhD students in 20 minutes and Tim Flannery last week. Oh, my goodness. You should be exhausted. Those were just fantastic shows. I'm a little tired, but I don't have room for tiredness because we still have three shows to go, and then I'll just fall in a heap somewhere. But uh, look, they were a lot of fun, those shows, actually. Talking to Tim Flannery again was great because we haven't spoken uh, to him on air in a few years. Um, and the 20 and 20, uh, the students just do it all. They're fantastic. So they, they bring in so much energy. I love interviewing PhD students. I don't know. There's something about them. They, just, uh, they come with an extra dose of enthusiasm that uh, – uh, shall we say older professors like you two? Oh, well, well, what? what? <laughs> I was going to say, Dr. Shane, when are you going to be able to enjoy the emotional support of your great co-hosts back in the studio? Well, uh, it's a good question. Um, it would be nice to get you guys back in here at some stage. But uh, look, hopefully in 2021, we will uh, have the studio open again because not just you guys, but I miss having the guests in the green room. And um, that, that's a lot of fun meeting people before we go on air. At the moment, we don't get to do that, which is a bit of a shame. So yeah, it'll happen. We're almost there. We're doing well here in Melbourne. So, so we should be there soon. So Dr. Laura, since you spoke up, I'll let you go first. What do we got for news this week? Well, um, a story that came out in Nature this week, which is super, like, just relevant to all of us right now, um, is um, about how social distancing and self-isolation affects the brain. Now, this was conducted in zebrafish um, at the Max Planck. (laughs) But what I was going to say before, you know, we say, okay, zebrafish humans. Zebrafish are actually really well studied for looking at social interactions, depression, anxiety, they're really social creatures. Um, they like to hang out in shoals. As you know, they get anxiety if they're separated from their shoals. Um, and so in this study, um, researchers either, um, they look, they track changes in the brain of zebras that were raised in, uh, zebrafish that were raised in isolation, or they were with their kin and they were sort of, you know, interacted at certain times and they tracked gene expression in the brain over time. And so they used RNA-seq to, um, RNA sequencing to look at thousands of gene changes. And what they found very consistently is that in the brains of um, socially isolated zebrafish, there were certain genes that were consistently different. And one of these genes that sort of was the most striking was a gene called um, parathyroid hormone 2, 
or PTH2, which is also in humans. And what they found is that this gene was essentially like a thermometer of whether the fish were alone or with other fish. So if the zebrafish are isolated, P2H2 disappears. You, you take these isolated fish and you reintroduce fish back into the tank of these isolated fish. It goes, it goes up. And it goes up very quickly within 30 minutes. Within 12 hours, the brains are looking identical of whether you were reared in isolation or whether you're now kind of, you know, with other fish kicking around in the tank. Um, and so I kind of, and so I kind of, that's very dynamic regulation of either you're in a social setting or you're not. I love the fact that, you know, everything can go back to normal very quickly. This is good news for all of us, at least for this gene in particular in zebrafish. But um, they looked at what was actually driving, you know, this very rapid change in gene expression. Is it, you know, vision? Is it smell? What are they sensing? And they found out it was um, mechanosensation. sensation. Am I saying that right? Hmm. Anyway, Sounds good to me. Sounds yeah. good to me. Anyway, fish can actually feel other fish swimming around them. They have um, a sensory organ called the lateral line. Um, and they did experiments where they would ablate um, sort of cells that could, um, you know, sense in the, in the lateral, lateral line. And then the gene expression of P2H was not recovered, showing it was directly um, related um, to um, this mechanosensation. And it's sort of just like we are sensitive to touch. Um, fish are sensitive to other fish having around them. So... You know, if we're thinking, okay, if it can all be okay just by other fish being around you, as humans, if we're feeling, you know, ang you know, a lot of anxiety from being isolated, can we just hug a teddy bear? Well, maybe, because they introduced just sort of artificial sort of fish or artificially um, sensations of water, and you could get the gene expression to rise. If you just simulate those sensations, you can trick the brain into thinking there are other um, fish around you. Hmm. So anyway, I thought that, um, you know, if, you, if anyone's feeling, you know, a little bit, odd after social isolation that actually might be all these unknown sort of gene expression changes in the brain that we have no idea like what they were you know how they're working what are the pathways but stuff is going on and that might be making us feel a little bit odd interesting see i've just compensated uh with you guys not being here with some paper cutouts of all three of you and exactly. um, and those genes in my brain are going fine they're going fine as a result don't need you actually in here as long as my brain's tricked into thinking that those those <laughs> genes are going well is it that's what you're telling us basically laura yeah, just just put yeah. something else. Fake it till you make it, kind of stuff. Fake it till you yeah. make it. Yep. Doctor Ray, what do you got for us? Uh, well, I have a, a story also about um, biology, but this one was about aging and particularly eye cells and mice, uh, eyes and mice. Uh, so you know, aging happens or from the fact that over time our DNA gets a lot of chemical markers and things that accumulate on it, and that can affect the cell not working. So. These researchers have restored vision in old mice and mice with damaged retinal ner nerves by resetting these chemical markers through using three transcription agents. And um, this is pretty wild. I mean, so this is going from we know something happens with DNA and that and all these chemical markers and that links to aging to let's see if we can make it reverse. Uh, and it, which is pretty profound because why it works, they're still a little fuzzy on. But they infected mats with a mice, mice with an adenovirus that had three of what are known as the Yamanka factors or Yamanica factors. Someone can tell me if I'm any did any worse or better than mechanosensing. Um, it's a group of four transcription factors that can actually cause mature cells to go back to an immature state. Now, the problem is in, in when they use that on cells, sometimes cells do things you don't want. So what the authors did that was different was they only used three of those transcription factors, 
Uh, and they did it on the retinal ganglia cells, um, which form the optic nerve. They did ones that were damaged. They just did ones in old mice. They did ones with mice glaucoma. And they all came, all these cells regenerated. So they, they got the characteristics of being young cells and were able to heal. Um, one of the authors described it as watching a jellyfish wound heal. It was amazing. Um, and, and, and so you can actually see these mice nerves actually regenerate themselves. Um, and it's exciting. They still don't, they're a little fuzzy on some of the whys. And it's, it's much more complicated. But the hypothesis they really wanted to test was that your DNA from all the epigenetic things that happen to it over time, the mileage on your DNA, how the methylation of your DNA changes, still has information about when your cells and DNA were young and that you could actually still access that information to make your tissue more regenerative. And that was the hypothesis that they, they think they proved. They're a little fuzzy on some of the whys, but they know it's much more complicated than just adding these tr three transcription factors and just the methylation of the DNA. Now, why this is interesting, because remember, this is all in mice, is they also, at the end of the study, did some in, vi in, in, in vitro, so just cell work, with human cells as well, with human retinal cells, and saw similar behaviors. So there is, um, they, they have a theory that this particular set of transcription factors may actually work in other brain neurons as well for other mammals, um, but they don't know yet. But they think there's enough potential that this was out of the Harvard Medical School where it took, they submitted the work in, sometime in early 2019. It only just came out now. And I don't know if part of that is around the fact that they patented it and licensed the technology to a Boston company called Life Biosciences, Biosciences which is exploring this as possibly to, to set up a human trial to see if this could actually end up being a treatment for human eye disease. So, you know, that's a pretty big leap. Um, and there's way more questions. Then, then I think there are answers there, but this is a big leap forward and might actually set up a whole new field of how they use gene transcription factors to regenerate tissues. Yeah, very cool stuff, Dr. Wright. So, I think uh, anything like that would be helpful, especially with a lot of the, the degenerative eye diseases that yeah. uh, we know Dr. Lauren and others work on so strongly. Lyndon, what have you got for us? Well, Dr. Shane, you know that I have been um, kind of a bit checked out the last few months. I've had a, a tiny new family member to look after. So I haven't really been paying that much attention to my normal bread and butter, which is, you know, weather and climate statistics and all of those fun things. But I couldn't help myself this month because uh, we have just had our warmest spring on record for mm. Australia. I was really surprised by that. I don't know about you guys, but I've been feeling kind of cold for the last few months and there's lots of people being like, no, it's cold in my house. Can't really be that warm. But the stats are, are pretty pretty convincing. It was the warmest spring on record for Australia. Uh, and looking at the numbers a little bit more closely, a lot of that was because our nights were particularly warm. Victorian nights were the warmest on record, particularly for the eastern part of the state. And Australia-wide, the nights were almost like if you average over the whole country, the record, previous record was set in 1998 and we blitzed that by almost half a degree, which Aileen and I have said this before, but normally when you break a record for a national mm. temperature, you break it by like 0.1 of a degree or yep. 0 0.05. This was half a degree, which is huge. And it's also huge because right now in the Pacific Ocean, there is a La Nina pattern going on 
where uh, normally when we have a La Nina event, you've got warmer than normal sea surface temperatures off the coast of Australia, and that is generally associated for us with wetter and cooler than normal conditions. So we, yeah, we're seeing these temperatures. I mean, yes, it's not surprising for climate change, but to have it uh, really shown in our faces this, this season is full on. But um, looking forward, so we've had this red map. It's been a very warm spring. Looking forward, the Bureau's maps for the summer ahead, for the first time in quite a while, are green. The maps are looking green. We are uh, looking for a, we will probably have, the outlooks are suggesting a wetter than average summer ahead of us because we've got this La Nina pattern. Last year, I'm not sure if you remember, I got really excited about the winds around Antarctica and how they were weaker than normal, and that kind of set off a a trickle effect from the highest part of the atmosphere all the way down to the surface and then up towards Australia, which led to some of the weather patterns that were associated with the the, um, bushfires over the summer. This year, we've got the opposite effect. We've got really, really strong winds high up above Antarctica, which is dragging all the weather systems further south, closer to Antarctica, and that is also leading to possibly more rainfall along the eastern part of the country this summer. So we've got green maps, probably still warm temperatures, but hopefully a bit more rain, which is really good for those of us who might be heading into bushfire-affected regions in the next few weeks. Yeah, that's a good piece of news. I mean, I always get excited whenever someone talks about the, as I, you know, we've often referred to on the show, the Southern Oscillation Index, which uh, Andrea from the bomb taught us many, many years ago. But it's incredible how much that, uh, that sea surface temperature and that can affect our weather and how long that can occur for, you know, like the, the big droughts that decades ago were decades long as a result of those um, those effects but you're saying that uh, it sh- even with that effect it's still half a degree whereas it should be lower which is um yeah abs- that's so it. that's you- what's so surprising yeah. to me that's what dragged me out of my maternity leave ignorance <laughs> of the, the records i was like wait what that's not yeah that's not, be, that's a not right. scary, like, yeah, be a bit scary be a bit scary if it was the other way around if you, if you- if you think about, we've got, if you have maybe uh, more cloud cover, that would make your nights a little bit warmer. So a bit yeah. of extra cloud cover plus climate, climate change would lead to warmer than average nights. Mm. Well, we have to uh, watch this space. And uh, regardless, one of the things important, if we have a slightly wetter um, summer, and you know, which will probably lead to you know, easing of conditions, uh, it is no reason to take our foot off the pedal in terms of what we need to do with regards to the change in climate. It's easy to forget just a year ago when the whole bloody country was burning down, and it probably won't happen again this year, but it will happen again, and uh, we have to make sure that uh, we don't take our foot off the pedal with regards to the urgency of those issues. Thank you, Dr. Linden. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ray, Dr. Laura. Good to see you all. We're going to run to a music break, but uh, chat you again the last show a couple of weeks from now thanks guys bye all right folks we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a few minutes with our first guest for today from monash university Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We have our first guest in the studio, virtually at least. His name is Jared McKenna. He's a PhD candidate in assisted reproductive technologies at Monash University. Good morning, Jared. Good to talk to you. Morning, Shane. 
Now, you are working on something that I only heard about probably on this show, actually, maybe less than a decade ago, but it was the idea that there's one mouse in particular that actually menstruates. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that, you know, we do so much drug testing using mice as as a model and rodents as a model, but with this one exception, none of them menstruate, which makes it kind of weird that we would drug test, you know, test drugs for women on mice that don't do that. I mean, how did that come about? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it definitely took a lot of people by surprise because everybody sort of thinks that, well, if humans menstruate, then a lot of the other animals in the world will as well. But in, in reality, it's only it's a handful. It's, it's just over 1%. So um, we know a lot about mouse and rat genetics and, and we're, we're, we're really good at keeping them, keeping them going and, and modifying genes and that sort of thing. So we've used them a lot. Um, in biomedical research, but now that we've got the, the spiny mouse, which was yeah, we only found it um, four years ago, mm. um, I think it was. So it's very, very, very recent. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of directions that we can go with with, with this mouse in, in terms of gynecology and, and obstetrics and pregnancy. Um, it's just a matter of it's it's such a new animal, so everything's a bit novel. Everything's a little bit tricky to get going at first. Um, but, but, you know, that's science. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting to me that so much work over the years with regards to, especially with, you know, reproduction problems with various other chemicals that are used to, to treat women for a variety of conditions. I mean, how, how have they been tested given the test subjects being the rodents in this case didn't do the same things that women did? I mean, what was the – how do you do that? Yeah, well, it's 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 often a criticism of of using mice because we have to we have to sort of induce a lot of the things that we want to study. So, in your head, you can sort of think that it's not really a, a true example of what's happening mm. because the sort of mechanisms that make you menstruate, for example, aren't there. Um, so we can we we can sort of look at a lot of the um, symptoms or phenotypes present with a with a disease or a disorder or something like that. But a lot of the problems. Um, sort of at the ground level or genetic level uh, sort of governing a disease or a disorder, we can't really do that well in mice, yeah. um, which is where hopefully the spiny mice is going to come in because um, otherwise our other options are other menstruating animals, you know, chimpanzees, right. gorillas, and, and they're pretty tricky to, to keep so and expensive. So, you know, the mouse, spiny mouse is a great new option that we've got. Yeah. Now, tell us about your work because you, you're using this particular mouse model to look at things like the, the way the uterus sort of prepares itself for pregnancy. Talk, talk us through that because it's not something we've talked about a lot on the show, I don't think. Yeah, sure. Well, um, it's a very intricate process. Uh, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you can understand. It's not as simple as putting an embryo into the uterus and then it's going to implant and then you're going to be pregnant. It's not quite that straightforward, you know. Um, uh, so in women um, seeking sort of infertility treatment, implantation failure affects about 15%. Um, of, of women, and we don't really know why. Um, so whether that's a problem with the embryo, whether that's a problem with the uterus, um, or both, um, it's very, very hard to sort of pinpoint that because it's very hard to study. Mm. Um, so obviously one of the benefits of, of having the spiny mouse is that they have a similar reproductive cycle to, to women. So in theory, they should experience a lot of the similar characteristics um, when when well, sort of in preparing the uterus um, for, for embryo implantation. So, and it's a real notable difference between mice and spiny mice is that um, 
the sort of governing trait around menstruation is that the uterus sort of terminally differentiates into a different, the cells terminally differentiate. And if there's no embryo to implant, then we shed them. Yep. Um, and that's sort of what we associate menstruation to be, whereas in mice that doesn't really happen. So in humans and, and spiny mice, we see sort of the, the, the uterus grow and, and sort of secrete these, um, these molecules and chemicals which are similar to, to what we see in humans and, and the, the sort of the cues are there that they've got a similar um, regulation of how embryos implant, for example. So I, that's what I'm looking at right now and, and so far so good. Um, but obviously, yeah, like I said, it's very hard. Everything's a bit new, so things don't yeah. really work for first go in, in a new animal model. But, um, but yeah, we're getting there. Hmm. Now, when, when, you, when you talk about that sort of success and failure of implantation, I suppose 15%, what's that? That's three in every 20 20 women which is a lot um yeah Uh, let me ask you is it the implantation itself or is it also sort of the the maintenance of it once implanted Mm. because we know there are there are issues on both sides of that that sort of dividing line of time where Mm. and i wonder how related those two two problems are yeah, well, well, well. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it, it it can be both. Um, there could be issues with the the uterus not sort of giving off the right signals for the embryo to implant, mm-hmm. um, and that can be one uh, one facet of 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 um, implantation failure. And that's uh, actually one of the aspects that I'm looking at. Um, and another one, yeah, like once the embryo has gone in, uh, do we get the appropriate blood vessels forming? Um, and in that case, like women with preeclampsia, they sort of have ab- abnormal. Um, um, uh, blood vessel sort of development, and and that's an issue that a lot of a lot of people face as well. And we're hoping that the spiny mass is going to help with that. So, I mean, that's just two examples. There's there's hundreds, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And and in terms of the, the sort of interventions, it, it it's interesting to me. You know, when we think of some of the the interventions we've had for various aspects of pregnancy over the years, like even things like folate. You know, and people mm-hmm. eating more folate. I mean, is do you think it's likely that some of the interventions here to sort of ward off some of these problems will be relatively simple or do you think is it sort of looking more like these might be problems that you just simply will not be able to deal with because the complexity is just too high in that part of the body Mm. i mean at this stage it's it's it it will be too complex to deal with because we're still sort of defining some of those fundamental pathways Mm. like how how the signals from the brain get to the uterus is it the same circuitry there um so we're still, you know, ground level entry. We're just in the door with, with their reproductive biology. But we're, we're optimistic because everything that we've done so far is very similar to what we see in humans. So yep. it's definitely something that's down the track in our lab. And, yeah, we're optimistic about it. It's fascinating stuff. When, when are you finishing your PhD, Jared? Ah, uh, that question, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> well, in... Uh, ideally by the end of the year that would be that would be nice oh that's but, pretty quick um, that's great yeah well even a few months either side that's pretty that's pretty quick <laughs> yeah yeah now, now you also do some work with uh zoos victoria yeah tell us a bit about that before we go yeah sure um it's definitely definitely a passion of mine i love animals so um i've been a zookeeper there for for two years now and i was a zookeeper before that in, in singapore as well which um is amazing amazing mm-hmm. fun you know, it's, it's, it's definitely um, a lot of people's dream job um I work with uh, primates in particular, so so I work with gorillas and, and lemurs and baboons and 
um, it's it's fascinating, especially coming from like a reproductive biologist sort of background and seeing how that's managed in the zoo system as well. It's um, something I didn't really think that will play a role in, in, in you know, zookeeping. I thought, it would, you know, sort of cleaning and feeding and giving them enrichment. But then, yeah, I've, I've, I've sort of noticed little things like that sort of making their way into the job, which is really cool. And the zoo's open again, right, yeah. which is uh, which is great for um, uh, for all the guests to come in. You know, some of the animals have definitely missed seeing guests. Some have liked their alone time, that's for sure. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's a great job. I, I, I really like it. And if I could combine sort of, you know, my reproductive biology knowledge with the, with in the, with the zoo system, that would, that would be a dream. Well, look, I think that's, uh, that's not that far away, I suspect, because one of the things that I've noticed, you know, I've, years ago, people know I was very anti-zoos in general, but um, as many zoos have converted themselves into conservation organizations, and I think Zoos Victoria has done a great job of that. I mean, it's not all, it's not all fantastic, but a lot of the work they do is quite exceptional, especially around things, you know, some of the um, really endangered um, Australian animals and, and insects and, and various other things have done the incredible job of keeping keeping them going so you're saying that the zookeeping job is not all just picking up poos from baboons that's uh, it is not yeah <laughs> there's, a little, there's a little bit more to it than that yet <laughs> yeah although that is what you spend most of your time doing yeah i was gonna say do, do they ever sort of look at you like uh yeah do it human yeah, you, you work for <laughs> pretty me. Much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. I can imagine they would. Well, look, Jared, it's been great uh, talking to you. Good luck with the ongoing work, and it's it's great to see. Um, you know, we had uh, the young lady uh, uh, whose name I'm sure you can you can give me who first uh, came across this menstruating mouse here in Melbourne. Um, Nadia Bellafiore. There we go. Um, <laughs> and it was very exciting to have her on the show shortly after that discovery and talking about that. Now seeing this actually turning into something that hopefully for for many women will lead to some more you know let's let's call them appropriate pathways for discovery of, of yeah. new drugs and treatments that are, that are not done on male mice but they're actually actually done on a menstruating female mice who would have thought what an idea who would have thought yep so uh <laughs> thanks for chatting to us jared good luck with finishing off that thesis before the end of the year and um and take care <laughs> no problem thanks shane thanks so much jared uh that was jared mckenna from a phd student from monash university working on a really interesting topic there folks we're going to take some, a break for some important station announcements and uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes with our second guest for, for today. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. We have our second guest on the line now. Dr. Atul Malotra is a consultant neonatologist. He's the head of the Early Neurodevelopment Clinic at the Monash Newborn at uh, Monash Children's Hospital in the Department of Pediatrics at Monash University. He's also part of the Ritchie Centre at the Hudson Institute. Atul, I don't know, have I read it all? You're doing a lot of things. Thank you, Shane. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, I have my plate full, but I enjoy it. I love it. Yeah, now, you're, uh, you're broadcasting from the, the hospital down there at the moment, so we may hear the odd uh, you know, uh, hospital PA call go over, but uh, let's see how we go. Now, you're a neonatal intensivist. Give us a bit of an yes. idea of what that job entails. Yeah, so Shane, most babies when they're born are fine, you know, but some babies are born early. So one in 10 babies can be born early, which is prematurity. But also some babies who are not born early may have some malformations, you know, some uh, defect in how their body is formed. It could be lung defects, heart defects, Mm. brain defects. And in some cases, uh, they have none of that. They're not premature. They're not got malformations, but they just don't transition very well. Transition means, you know, coming from a fetal life 
to a newborn life they just don't transition very well and they have trouble so a neonatal intensivist is a pediatric doctor so i'm a pediatrician by training but i specialize in looking after those babies who are really sick at birth yep. whether it's prematurity malformations poor transition infection you name it so you know uh, how neonatal doctors work in australia is very different to how they work in a low income setting so in in those places there are a lot of other problems uh, they face but in australia most of the babies we look after are premature babies and some of them have malformations they are the biggest group for us yeah uh, uh, when it comes to neonatal intensive care yeah i mean, one of the finds this is more of an observation i suppose than a question but it, it still amazes me that you know pre birth we're floating around in some fluid not breathing that fluid in in a sense and and post birth all of a sudden our bodies work out how to suddenly breathe air and whammo, we're, we're good to go. I mean, this seems like an incredible transition. I mean, what uh, is there some explanation to how we do this? It just seems extraordinary. I'm assuming that's where part of the problems come in. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the transition from the fetal to neonatal life is a fascinating one. And even after centuries or you know millennia of uh, these uh, births happening, we still are still uh, getting to understand the processes of transition better. And my colleagues at the Ritchie Center are forever trying to understand those transition processes even better. We have a fair idea of how it happens, but uh, it's definitely not uh, nailed down completely. But you're right; we are, uh, you know, trusting nature to do its job and transition easily. And for some unfortunate babies, that doesn't happen so smoothly. Mm. Obviously, if you're born premature, then it's even more difficult. But even for term babies, one in ten babies at term sometimes need a bit of help to transition that. Yeah. Now you are working on something very interesting. And that is, of, of course, many people would probably remember this uh, from the past and so forth. But there's a couple of things that just get thrown out during the birth process, generally into medical waste. One being the umbilical cord, and two being the placenta. But you're utilising that material in particular in some of those cases to help these kids. Tell us about what you're doing. Absolutely. So I work. Uh, my I work in a lot of areas, like you mentioned. But one of the areas I'm interested in is cell therapies. Cell therapies is a, a type of medical intervention where we are using uh, the cells in our body which have what is called pluripotent potential, which basically means the potential to regenerate or repair or replicate some basic cells of our body. Those are called stem cells, the pro- the cells which have the potential to regenerate and regrow various tissues of the body. And like you mentioned, at birth, I, I like. Uh, the idea, the concept of using that waste which we are throwing away, the placenta and the umbilical cord. So when a baby is born, they are attached to the mother through the placenta and the umbilical cord. That's the lifeline for them in the womb. And after birth, after a few uh, seconds or minutes, that uh, cord is clamped and cut. And when the placenta is delivered, it's thrown away. The placenta and the umbilical cord obviously starts from embryonic tissue. Remember, and that mm. embryonic tissue basically has the potential to divide and replicate into various different types of organs or tissue uh, which form the organ. So the gestational tissue, which is the placenta and cord, have these specialized cells. Some of them are stem cells, which have the potential to generate into whatever tissue you like, and some of them have stem cell-like properties that they do not generate into those tissues. but those cells itself secrete factors secrete molecules or substances which are actually able to help the baby inside when in the womb but also when they come out 
of potentially improving outcomes for them when it comes to their organ function you know so that's the mm. potential we are trying to harness it's quite exciting it's still early days uh, cell therapies for babies are still in their early days shane so we are uh, you know uh, leading some of those therapies uh, in australia which are not been done anywhere else in the world but uh, hopefully these therapies have a future Mm. It's it's fascinating that we've been throwing away this golden material for so long. And what, one question around that is where there are sort of genetic errors and, and, and issues with regards to a, a child, do they exist within the, the cord and the placenta as well? Or are those materials somewhat uh, different? Are they differentiated from the baby? It's an excellent question, uh, Shane. So there are many types of stem cells or cell therapies available. Uh, the most controversial or more more risky ones of them are embryonic cells which are basically formed from you know the early stage of the embryo when it's conceived those cells have obviously much more potential of dividing and replicating and as you can imagine they are at very high risk of tumor formation because they are such early stage cells that if you manipulate them or give it back to a baby they have potential of uh, you know having some significant consequences the cells from the placenta and the cord are much more down the line so they are not at an early stage so their risk of having these is very 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 low we think it's negligible or nil at all but because these therapies are still at an early stage we are still looking at those possible rare complications but you're right uh, it's uh, they are risk of stem cell therapies but we believe the gestational tissue related stem cell therapies have got hardly any risks mm. and i would like to just add one of the properties about these cells is that they do not engraft so if you transplant an organ or you transplant a cell which can replicate very fast they can engraft in the body and then replicate like almost like a cancer cell would potentially replicate so these therapies none of them engraft or actually hang around in the body of the babies we give it to so that's mm. really a good a good option uh, that they do not cause any major havoc you know yeah it's very interesting uh, just before we go talk cuz we're almost out of time but um exactly where are you in the sort of stages of uh, preparation yeah. of some of these treatments cuz i know you know we start off in the rodent models and in the petri dishes and so forth but yeah. ha- where are we in those stages at the moment with yeah, some of these so cell I'm, therapies i'm very lucky to work uh, in the uh, Uh, space where we have the uh, science and the translation science together so we we have we are still in discovery science mode for some of these therapies but for some of the therapies we've moved into early phase testing you know mm. now whether you call it phase 1 2 and so on uh, i would still call it early phase so early phase means that we have done the early safety studies for some of these therapies for example i was involved in a world first amnion cell trial uh with rebecca lim which is placental stem cells okay and so we have moved on to the second phase of that trial where we are testing what is the right dose of cells to be given for these babies mm. and i'm also in another trial where i think you interviewed one of my students lindsay last week in the phd uh, session uh, we are using cord blood stem cells or cells and we are now in that uh, trial where we are looking at the feasibility of using these cells have the babies got enough cells to be able to give it back to them uh, when it comes to these cell therapies so we are in early phase trial chain in in a nutshell but 
hopefully very soon we will be in late phase trial it's almost like the covid vaccine trials that you know you start off with yep. the safety in a in a small number of people and then you go on to bigger phase trials to see if they are really going to be efficacious so we are getting there slow yep. and steady we have to be very careful these are really vulnerable babies and we need to give them the best uh you know chance of a good outcome when it comes to these therapies yeah well at all look it's been fantastic talking to you and this is an area which i find absolutely fascinating because many of these problems of course uh will can affect uh these individuals you know not just when they're babies but throughout their entire life and can cause all absolutely. sorts of problems so yeah. great work uh keep it up hopefully we'll see some really good therapies coming out in the next few decades and that will help a lot of people thanks so much for chatting to us today and einstein and gogo Okay, thanks so much Shane and all the best. Cheers. Thank you very much. Folks, we're going to take a break now for some music and when we come back we'll be talking to a couple of individuals from uh, Swinburne University about some of the new space uh, type programs they've got going on there which are really fascinating. Uh here's some music and uh, then some uh, important station announcements and then we'll be back with our final couple of guests for today. Triple R. Uh, folks, uh, welcome back. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We have two amazing guests on the line now from Swinburne University. We've got Professor Virginia Kilbourne, who is the Dean of Science, and also Dr. Rebecca Allen, who is the Project Coordinator for the Swinburne Space Office. Welcome both. How are you going? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks very much for having us on this morning. Very exciting. And Rebecca, Absolutely. look, it's great. And Rebecca, you, I just love your title. You're in charge of the Swinburne Space Office. I didn't know Swinburne had a space office. This is so cool. And this is outer space stuff, not like just space. Yeah, not office space. I know that was a that was a very tricky thing when we were when we were deciding what we wanted to call ourselves because we realized that we were kind of running into an issue with Swinburne facilities because they had already branded space at Swinburne. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we had to, to do something else to group together all of our outer space activities. Yeah, no, look, that's fantastic. And I just, just keep those facilities people at bay because, you know, space is something that, you know, just throw a Jules Byrne book at them or something and say, keep, keep in your box, people. Stay in your box. Um, now, Virginia, I want to start with you because Swinburne has, has sort of – I know you've been motivated somehow to introduce this new co-major in space technology, which just sounds wild. I'm annoyed it wasn't there when I came through as an undergrad. I didn't go to Swinburne, but I would have if it was there. Tell us, tell us about why did you start this space technology um, co-major up and what does it involve? Well, uh, space at the moment is such an exciting sector and there is just a, a million developments going on and it's developing at such a rapid rate. And what, we've, what we noticed a few years ago was that space has really become democratised. So it's not just the big um, government agencies that are doing space now. Individual companies can send objects into space and they can be really part of the, um, the, the chain and, and have a lot of value. And so, of course, we now have an Australian space agency. Mm-hmm. And their aim is to, that we increase the number of jobs in Australia by 20,000 in the next 10 years. So my colleagues and I went, well, how are we going to do that? And what does a job in space look like? And when we looked at it, it's not just an engineer. that we Space sector needs people who know marketing and business and engineering and electronics and physics and maths. And so what we thought was we would have a degree where you could come to Swinburne, study any subject, health even, and you do a co-major in space and then you learn to apply your skills in your degree to the space industry and then you can just step into a job after that. 
Mm, it sounds like super cool. Re- Rebecca, give us a bit of an idea about um, what sort of subjects and the, the units that people would be doing in this particular program. Like, is it, um, I, I mean, please tell me there's a, a, an Apollo history uh, series of lectures. And can I give it? well as virginia just mentioned working in space is not just one narrow area and one narrow speciality and so the idea of the co-major is to first give you an introduction of what is the landscape of space activities and the applications and roles that australia will play in it so specifically if you are in australia and you are really keen to work in the space industry, what does that look like? And so we really want people to have that impression. Um, And then we get into some of the more focused areas, such as understanding, you know, more about um, microgravity environment and what what kind of experiments we'd want to send up there, the technology that we want to send to space and small satellites and CubeSats. And of course, along the way, we want students to get that hands-on experience, as Virginia alluded to. by working on projects directly with industry. Mm. So one of the things I found interesting is, of course, there's been a, a lot of hype around the, the you know, appropriately so, around this, having our own space agency. And I think there's one other country that doesn't have one in the OECD, but we were the, the second last, I think. You know, good on you, Australia. You know, we finally got there. But Australia's had a huge interaction with the space industry long before the space agency came into play uh, is that transitioning now have you seen a big shift in in that and what would be required for people coming out of this course or is it more sort of more of the same that just hasn't been sort of known by many people i suppose if i yeah if i can just answer that first quickly i would say uh certainly you're seeing both kind of happening the area of support is always going to be there and you saw that with jaxa with us getting the hayabusa 2 content capsule and so i think that's what's fantastic is we have that legacy of really supporting and showing how valuable the australian industry is and now you're starting to see the transition to okay well what can we use um, in our research and our skills to, to lead in the global kind of uh, ecosystem. And so I think it's, it's really both focusing on maintaining and growing what we're already good at. Um, but then again, where can we have some innovation and entrepreneurship as well? And mm. so I think that's what the kind of the strategy that we're seeing. Yeah. But Virginia, uh, when, when you, you only have to take a look at any globe of the earth and you'll see there's a damn lot of land in the northern hemisphere, but not that much in the southern hemisphere. And we seem to have a fair bit of it. I mean, how, how much is our sort of southern hemisphere launch site potential driving some of this activity? Because, I mean, we're a stable country. A lot of open spaces. There seems to be a lot of potential there for us to do a lot more. Oh, that's absolutely right. And that's why we've got at least three companies that are looking to launch uh, rockets and satellites in the future from Australia. And so some of them are near the equator. And, of course, the beauty of having a launch site near the equator is that you get a bit of a boost from the Earth's rotation. But, of course, we also have the site um, near Woomera, which has been historically a wonderful launch site. And so you're, you're right there. Um, we're, we've got a big country and it's also not heavily populated. Mm. So it is actually ideal for this sort of activity. 
And so, we, but we really needed the space agency to do the governance and regulation, and that's a huge part of um, launching anything into space. Yeah. So when when you come out of uh, doing this degree, and as you said, it's a, it's a co-major, so you do it alongside something else. I mean, what what do you get at the end? What does that look like? Do I have a, a bachelor of kick-ass space technology? What what do I end up with at the end? What's because I mean, yeah. sorry, I'm pretty excited about this. <laughs> You'd, you'd come out with your normal degree, so you'd have a you know, Bachelor of Science with a major in physics and a co-major yep. in space technology. Imagine that. Who wouldn't want to hire someone who has, has those credentials? Um, so, Or it could be a Bachelor of Health Science, um, Bachelor of Engineering, with, and but you're, you would have that co-major in space technology. But the beauty of it is that as part of the course, you'll work with at least three companies on um, space technology projects whilst you're still at uni. So not only do you get to understand where the space industry is excelling in Australia, the employers also get to find out about you. And so we're hoping that's actually going to drive some really good employment outcomes from the program. Yeah, now you may not have these numbers in your head, and I I vaguely have some recollection of them, but about how much is the space industry worth in Australia? Because my vague recollection was around the $10 a year mark. Is that close? Uh, I think it's a little less than uh, $10 billion at the moment, but they certainly want to grow past that um, okay. in the next years. Yeah. So they're trying to triple the size of the space industry in the next um, 10 years. And so it is a huge industry. Uh, it really is. And so when you look at um, Australia's uh, con- contribution monetary-wise, uh, we're, we're about at the 2 to 3% level, and we really mm. want to drive that right up. And we've definitely got the capability and capacity so australia has fantastic um manufacturing and research and uh these are and also uh, a big data processing and visualization they're really really important when we're looking at the space industry which a lot of it is pointing uh satellites at earth and trying to analyze data and so we've got fantastic skills doing that in australia and so that's one of those areas that we can really contribute in globally yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. Rebecca, before uh, we go, I, just, I wanted to ask you, you've got a school space experiment competition going on. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is actually kind of coming full circle because part of what inspired us to start the space office and, you know, be go forward with the co-major with our university students is that we started with a project called Shine, where we worked with Haleberry Secondary College to design and build an experiment that fl- has flown on the space station. Mm. And your uh, audience members at home won't be able to see it, but I actually have last year's experiment right here, um, and we've analyzed it. And what's incredible about that is that the secondary students drive that project. They research what are critical challenges with the microgravity environment and us going forward um, you know, with our uh, exploration of space. And then they have to basically come down and focus that into an experiment that fits in a capsule about the size of a remote control that will fly on the International Space Station. And so we've had a really great relationship with Haleberry getting to do that and with our university students getting to mentor. And we really want other schools to get to learn again, like the co-major, what does space activity look like in Australia? And then challenge them to come up with their own experiment and then hopefully get to see one or two of those schools fly their own experiment on the space station. Yeah, that's certainly something for those kids to put on their uh, CV one day. It's very, very cool. Um, Rebecca, thanks so much for that. Virginia, just before I let you go, how do people uh, find information on this new co-major that Swinburne's offering? 
Uh, so if you go to the Swinburne web pages or Google Space Technology at Swinburne, you'll, um, you'll find all the information there. And you can uh, enrol in one of our degrees and uh, choose the space technology co-major as your co-major. And we will be there on the other end of that. Um, can't wait to, t- to see who, who enrolls. Uh, look, it sounds fantastic. And, of course, I am available for any of those lectures on the you know, history of space flight. Any, any of the, anything, basically, anything to do with space tech, I'm there. Just give me a yell. You have to pay me, of course. But, you know, very eager to get involved. Um, it sounds I great. we might take you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both for chatting about this. It's so exciting to see some of this stuff coming in the universities in Australia and how that transition is occurring for our country. So uh, thanks so much. And uh, keep us posted. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Folks, uh, that was Professor Virginia Kilborn, the Dean of Science at Swinburne University, and Dr. Rebecca Allen, the Project Coordinator of the Swinburne Space Office, talking about their new co-major. We are almost out of time, and I'm going to have to hand over to the amazing team from EDIT. I can see both uh, Cam and Matt Stedman. They're just hanging around the green room. They probably want to get into a studio soon, but uh, they are always uh, good to listen to. So if you want to hear... Food stuff done as only Cam and Matt can do it. Uh, remember to tune in in just a few minutes. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again in about seven days minus one hour. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Twitter account or Facebook page.